0: We're in First John chapter two, and invite you to turn there this morning. First John chapter two, we're looking at verses twenty-one through twenty-seven, but we're in a passage that really begins in verse eighteen. And so I'm going to read verses eighteen through twenty-seven with you as we describe this uh, the the this, this spirit of the spirit of the antichrist and and how we are to respond as believers and God's anointing work in our lives. We're going to, to continue to think through. How to, how to rightly respond to, in all those situations. And so if you would, in honor of God, stand as we read his word together, if you're able to do so, looking at verses 18 through 27, 1 John chapter 2, reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. You may be seated. May God encourage you through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Spirit who instructs us in all truth. And we now ask that your Spirit would would be at work within us as we listen to your words. We pray for our fathers in our our church this morning that you would help us to encourage them in the ministry to which you've called them. We pray that we'd be faithful, uh, those of us who are fathers, to discharge the duty you've entrusted to us. we pray that we would all look to you as our heavenly father and honor you. We pray this in your son Jesus's name. Amen. Well, I want to share a little bit of a recent fathering experience that my children endured. Uh, we were on our, well, I guess the last Sunday that I was here preaching. We left the service, and after we left the service, went home, changed clothes, and then began to make our way to Florida for our family vacation. And my goal had been to make it as as far as we could uh, to Florida and maybe stop around 11 or 12 and and get some rest and then pick up and and finish the the next morning. And, you know, 11 o'clock hit and I'm thinking I'm feeling pretty good. And then 12 o'clock hit and I'm I'm, I'm feeling even better. And it might have had something to do with the children were now asleep and uh, they're, they're all quiet and and Whitney has, has fallen asleep, and I'm thinking, you know, I could, just, I could just drive another hour, and we'd be that much further ahead tomorrow, and Whitney would wake up, and oh, that's so great that Daniel, you were a little further. So one o'clock hits, and I'm feeling good still, and then two o'clock, I'm just, I am just trucking along, and it's 2.45 in the morning, and I'm thinking, okay, I feel good, but I know I can't go another eight hours. Can I? No, I can't. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. But, and, and uh, maybe dads especially, you know what I'm thinking at this point, but it's 3 a.m. I don't want to spend a lot of money on a motel for just a couple of hours. All right, I'll, I'll stop. So I, I pulled over and I found the, the the least expensive, is the word I'm willing to use, some use the word cheap, uh, motel that I could find. And I, I pull in and talk to the lady behind the cage and... Uh, Reserve reserve the room and go and we pull around the back of the building. And I say hi to all our people, our neighbors that are out there at three o'clock in the morning, coming in and out of doors. Very friendly, welcoming committee to be out there that early in the morning. Although I don't think they were early risers; I think it was up late. Then we go into our room and and there's there's some problems with the room. It's there's some drainage issues. There's some things that I have to. Uh, hide and throw away before Whitney can see them. and um, uh, But but the overall problem with the room is 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 uh, one of heat. When we opened the door, it was just like opening the door to an oven. There's this blast of, of hot air struck us in the face. And uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this was the hottest room I've ever been in in my life. And I've been in a sauna before. It was just sweltering. And I go over to the unit, and I try to turn it to cold, and I turn it from hot to cold, and it still is just blasting out this hot air. I turn it from cold to off, and it still just blasts out this this hot air, and I I unplug the unit from the wall, and finally the beast dies, and I tell the family, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's what, trying to happy dad here, right? Here's what we're going to do. Girls take this bed, and uh, guys will take this bed, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to prop open the door, and uh, just so I can h- say hi to people as they walk by, I'm going to sit here, and you guys are going to fall asleep. You're going to feel this kind of breeze coming in uh, from from the uh, outdoors, and you guys will fall asleep. And When everyone's asleep, I'm going to shut the door, and I'll go to sleep as well. So we try that. 15, 20 minutes go by, and everyone's quiet in their beds, and I've said uh, goodnight to our last neighbor walking by, and I, I come in, and, and I shut the door, and it's like shutting the door an oven except I'm I'm on the inside of the oven this time and we we walk I walk over to the bed I lay down and I I I feel like a biscuit in an oven just baking and I I say out loud as I'm trying to get to sleep here I say boy it is 115 degrees in here as I say those words our eight-year-old jumps out of bed it's like he's been trying to be good, and now his brain has baked, and he just begins screaming, ah, jumping out of bed, just jumping out, ah, 115 ah, ah. degrees, are you kidding me, Dad? I said, yes, I'm kidding, it's not really 115 degrees, it's close enough. He may have been right, too, it may have been literally 115 degrees. So whenever we've calmed him down, we, we try to do a couple other things. But uh, now, um, he's not the only one who feels this way, apparently. Every other person in the room except one uh, had some, some extreme displeasure with this room. And so I try to point out, and maybe you do this in situations that are uncomfortable as well. I try to point out how things could be worse. <laughs> we could be in a car accident. Uh, we could have been sleeping in a, a rest area restroom. I mean, there's there's worse places probably that we could have been sleeping. Now, long story short, everyone survived. We we uh, we tried to get a different room. It was worse, and so we played around with the thing, unplugging and plugging it, unplugging it um, the extent of my mechanical abilities, and it actually worked. They began to blow out cold air, and we slept for a couple hours. It could be worse. That was kind of my mantra and we made a memory. Now, maybe whenever you find yourself in, in uncomfortable situations, you've used that expression as well. Hey, hey things could be worse. Yeah, yeah, this is a bad situation, but, but things could be worse. And, and usually it's true. In fact, very often it, it's true. Uh, but that brings to mind the question, well, what is the worst thing that can happen to a person? I mean, the worst thing that can happen to a family is, is not to spend the night in a motel room that isn't the Ritz, okay? Um, the worst thing that can happen to a person isn't even to get sick. It's not to lose their earthly possessions. In fact, the worst thing that can happen to a person isn't even having someone whom they love pass away or, or themselves lose their health and, and, and die. That's not the worst thing that can befall a person. The worst thing, as bad as those things are, the worst thing that can happen to a person is to be separated from God for eternity, to be found apart from Christ. That's the worst thing that can happen to a person. We're looking at 1 John chapter 2. And we're talking about antichrists. And John has told us that there is a coming antichrist, and apparently he had taught the people that were there in his churches that he helped exercise spiritual oversight over. He had told them, "Yeah, there's this coming antichrist, and the antichrist is going to be one who opposes God's kingdom. That's the, the task of the antichrist to deceive, to destroy, and and to work to thwart God's kingdom. And God is trying to establish a kingdom. God is going to establish a kingdom where Christ reigns supremely, and the best thing for a person is to be a part of God's kingdom. That's that's the reason for which we are designed. Our ultimate purpose is found only in God and in Christ and his kingdom. That's that's what we were designed to be a part of, and that's where ultimate joy and happiness and fulfillment is found. The Antichrist will work to ensure that people are not a part of God's kingdom. He will do everything within his power to destroy the establishment of God's kingdom in people's lives, and the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in our culture today, is at work in John's day, and it continues to be at work in our day, and that the spirit of the Antichrist is, is the same as the ultimate task of the Antichrist, and that's to prevent the establishment of God's kingdom in individual people's lives. In other words, the task of the Antichrist is to ensure that the worst possible thing befalls a person. The spirit of the antichrists is to work so that the worst possible fate that a person can encounter, they will encounter, and that is to enter eternity apart from Christ. For a person not to acknowledge the lordship, the authority of Jesus Christ here and now in their lives. So what hope do we have? There's no question in Scripture that the Antichrist is powerful. There's no question in Scripture, and as we look around us today, that the spirit of Antichrists is powerful. This force that works to diminish the establishment of God's kingdom in our world today, it's it's, it's powerful. There can be no question about it. And so what hope do you have? What hope do you have that you can be confident you will remain in Christ? What hope do you have that your children can remain in Christ? You know, I, I think about my task as a father, and my ultimate desire for my children would be that they be found in Christ. Well, what hope do I have that even after they've made professions of faith and God has begun to work in their lives, what what hope do I have that they can continue in Christ because I know how powerful the pull of this world is and I know how powerful the spirit of antichrists are. What hope do I have that I and my family and my friends and and you who I love at Bethany Community Church, what hope do I have that we will continue, that we will remain, remain in Christ? And here's what we see in in 1 John. We began looking at this a few weeks ago. Here's kind of the statement I want you to kind of meditate on. I remain in Christ because of his anointing. I remain in Christ because of his anointing. There's two words in that phrase that we really looked at few weeks ago when we were talking about this 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 passage the first word is the word remain it's a word that occurs throughout this passage in first john really occurs throughout the epistle of first john and what does it mean to remain that word remain means to to abide it means to continue those are some of the words you see translated that that are from the same word to remain to continue to abide it means that that i know that i am going to continue to be in christ and he is going to be continue to be in me means I, re- I remain in Christ, I abide with him, I continue with him. The second word, I, I remain in Christ because of his, that, that other word is, is anointing. It's a word that occurs several times in our text this morning. That word anoint we saw a few weeks ago, it describes, uh, first of all, what we see in in uh, the Old Testament as, as being consecrated to do a task. So, for example, in Exodus, Aaron and his son are anointed. His sons are anointed to be priests. They're, they're called by God to do this special task. They're anointed. We see in Isaiah 61, the prophet says, I've, I've been anointed to, to deliver this message. It's been, I've been entrusted with this task. And As we come to the New Testament, what we see about anointing is anointing describes the gift of the Holy Spirit given to believers to do the things that God has called them to do, to, to be convicted of sin and to remain in Christ. So for example, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21, would say, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Verse 22 of 2 Corinthians 1. And who has also put his, his, his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So there's this anointing that we have. that's the spirit who is given to us. He uses... The word baptism is, is another way to describe this anointing. So we see this in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. In one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. So this gift of the spirit is this anointing by God. And it, it's given to all believers. It's not like there's some super spiritual believers who get anointed, and, and some believers who are just kind of your, eh, those are your average run-of-the-mill Christians that haven't been anointed yet. No, all believers are given the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Are, we're, we're, we're baptized into Christ spiritually. We're, we're anointed. We become one with Christ. We become one with one another. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a really important thing to understand, isn't it? We 're not what you would call a, a charismatic church, a uh, charismatic church, not meaning like not, 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 not that we 're not excited, not charismatic in that sense. I 'm a very exciting person, um, but we 're not charismatic in the sense that, that there are some spiritual gifts that, that charismatics believe are, are still in operation in a, in a certain way today, and we say, no, we 're not really there. But the problem with those of us who wouldn't consider ourselves char- a charismatic church or charismatic Christians is sometimes. Because of the excesses that we think we see sometimes in our brothers and sisters in Christ who are charismatic, sometimes we tend to kind of shy away from talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to our detriment, right? But what we we see as we talk about the anointing of the Holy Spirit is that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is essential, and understanding the anointing of the Holy Spirit is essential for remaining in Christ and continuing in Christ and, and doing what God has called us to do in Christ. So what I want us to do is I want us to look here at first John chapter two. We're gonna kinda of review and begin looking at verse eighteen and we're going to see some characteristics of antichrists, this, these spirits who are at work in the world to deceive and to destroy. We're going to see those characteristics. And then, at the same time that we see those characteristics, we're going to see how the anointing of the Spirit allows us to remain in Christ. So we're going to see the characteristics, the power of the antichrists, and then we're going to simultaneously see how, how the anointing of the Holy Spirit allows us to remain in Christ, the, the victory that we have through the anointing. So the first thing we saw last week, or several weeks ago. Number one, first characteristic of the Antichrist, Antichrists are deserters. Antichrists are deserters, but Christ's anointing ensures that I'm going to remain in the fellowship. So verse 18 of 1 John 2, children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. We know it's the last hour then so it's describing the danger thereof and then verse 19 describes their desertion they they went out from us and so here's the fellowship of the church and these antichrists work dissension within the church and then they they remove themselves from fellowship with other believers and as they remove themselves from fellowship as they deserted the community of faith it revealed that they they weren't really of us. They weren't really believers, for if they had been of us, John says, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And we've talked before about how recently there was a, a prominent person who's in leadership in the Christian community who said, you know what, I don't really, I don't really do church. I've kind of created my own community. Well, that's exactly what the false teachers in John's day had done. They said, you know what, I don't like existing in this structure. I'm going to kind of go and do my own thing and John says, look, that's not a characteristic of a Christ follower. It's not the characteristic of one who's working to establish the kingdom of Christ. That's the spirit of the Antichrist, the one who's working to destroy the establishment of Christ's kingdom. Antichrists are deserters. Verse 20, though, what do we see? Verse 20 gives us some hope. It says, but you, you're not like that. You've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. In other words, uh, you have this gift of the Holy Spirit given by Jesus Christ and you have the ability to remain in the fellowship. So that was the first characteristic we looked at a few weeks ago. Here's the next characteristic we see of Antichrist and how the Christ anointing helps us. Antichrist, secondly, are deniers. They are deniers. But, we're going to see here, Christ's anointing ensures That I will remain in my confession. Antichrists are deniers. Look there at the text with me again if you would. Verse 21. It says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. We'll look at the next verses in just a minute here. But, but see this. Uh, there's kind of four thoughts as we think about this idea that Antichrists are deniers. There's kind of four thoughts that I think are important for you to see in these verses. The first is this. Christians are to be confessors. Christians are to be confessors. I've kind of painted this picture for you this morning of, of two opposing forces in the world, Right? God is working to establish his kingdom through Christ, and you and I want to be a part of that kingdom. We've been designed to be a part of that kingdom, so that, that's 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 one force in the world, and yet there's also this this other force that is seeking to deceive and to destroy and to diminish the influence of God's kingdom in people's individual lives. This second force will not ultimately be successful, but It's a force that's at work now and is doing everything it can to deceive, to destroy, to deny Christ. So here's a question for you How does God call us to be establishing his kingdom? Have you ever thought about that question? If it's true that I'm to be a, a person who is establishing the kingdom of God, what tools do I have at my disposal to be building this kingdom? What are the resources I use to, to, to populate this kingdom and build it up and do all the things I'm supposed to be doing? Let me suggest to you that one of the essential ways in which we establish the kingdom of God is through our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, as, as Messiah. You see, kind of the popular idea in our culture today is that, well, we establish the kingdom of God by, by doing good things. And so I, I go and I, I see an orphanage and these kids who are suffering, and I want to establish the kingdom of God, and so I'm going to do, do good to these kids. And as I do good, I'm establishing the kingdom of God. Or I see people who are in poverty in my community, and, and I want God's kingdom to be established. I know that God doesn't desire people to, to, to live in poverty while I have uh, resources, and so I'm going to work to establish God's kingdom and, and help these people out who are poor. Or maybe I, I see people who are hurting my family, and I'm going to establish God's kingdom by doing nice things for them. Now, all of those things are super, right? We should be doing those things. That's not the primary means by which God calls us to establish his kingdom. God calls us to establish his kingdom by confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Christians are confessors. It is an essential attribute of who we are. So, as I help the poor, as I help at the orphanage, as I help people in my family who are hurting, I do that as I confess that Jesus is the Lord. I'm not just doing nice things, I'm doing nice things as a confessor of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, keep your fingers there in 1 John and, and turn back, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, something really interesting happens here. 1 Timothy, it's in, it's in the T section of your Bible. 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3, you come to verse 16, and, and it's 1 Timothy 3.16 is what we believe was a confession of the early church. This is something that early Christians would, would say as kind of a, a summation of the things they believed about Jesus Christ. Paul writes, Great indeed we confess. We're confessors. This is the thing we say is true. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, that's Jesus Christ, was manifest in the flesh. In other words, God became flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Those are, And we could talk more about this verse. But those are the things, some essential things that we confess to be true about Jesus Christ, Paul is saying. And so as these Christians in the first century engage in the marketplace, as they engage in government, as they engage with other people and with whom they love and are in relationship, they confess that these things are true. This is who Jesus Christ is. By contrast, Paul goes on to say, going to chapter 4, verse 1, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. What's this? This This is the spirit of Antichrist. This is false teaching. Christians are to be confessors. Christians are to be people who go to the places in which God has sovereignly placed them and they say, hey, Jesus is king. Hey, a workplace, I'm here as a Christian. You need to know Jesus is king. Just got to lay that out there. You go and you interact with your family and you say, hey, family, uh, Jesus is king. You engage in politics and you say, hey, you know what? I'm not saying everyone has to become a Christian, but You all got to know, Jesus is king. That's really annoying. (laughs) You know this in our culture today. People aren't excited that Christians are constantly confessing that Jesus is Christ. There are two words that really sum up what our culture today says to Christians who confess that Jesus is king. And it's the same two words that our culture, that cultures throughout the history of the church have said to confessing Christians. You know what the two words are? Be quiet. Be quiet. First century Christians, they're engaging in life in the Roman Empire, and what they believe about Jesus as king interferes with political life, and interferes with economic life because they they can't do some of the things that people are are expected to do there in the roman culture it it impacts cultural family life as they refuse to believe the same things about marriage and about children and as they say look jesus is king we got to operate in accordance with who jesus is and the culture says be quiet christians and the christian cannot be quiet the christian has to say look King Jesus is Lord. He's Messiah. I I can't deny that. I must profess that, and I must remain faithful and true to my confession. And what that means is that I believe that Jesus Christ's kingship has no no end. There's no area of life where you say, you know what, uh, Jesus? Yeah, he's kind of he's in charge of Bethany Community Church, but Jesus's reign doesn't include. Uh, Peoria or Washington or Germantown Hills, Metamora, Morton, or Eureka. It it just kind of ends here. But no, King Jesus' kingship goes everywhere. There's no point where you say, well, that point is where his lordship stops. And what are Christians? Christians are confessors. And we live in a culture that by and large encourages people to be quiet. And our temptation, I believe, is to be quiet. I'm not saying be a jerk. I'm not saying don't be winsome. But What I'm saying is, look, you as, as followers of Jesus Christ, your, your task is to not be a denier, but to be a confessor. And the voice of a Christian who is consistently confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ stands in, in stark contrast to everyone else around him or her. A loving voice that consistently says, Hey, this is who Jesus is, this is what his lordship looks like, and I, and I love you, but I'm just going to keep on saying these things in a gracious way. That's a powerful message in a culture that hates truth. It's always been the case. Christians are confessors. That's the first thing I want us to think about as we think about these verses here in verses 21 through 25. The second thing that I want us to think about is that we have the ability to confess the truth because God has given us that ability. So we're to be confessors. Now how can we do that? Well, because God has divinely given us that ability. Look at verse 21. He says, I'm writing this not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. God has given us the ability to know truth. We've talked about how this is already. We have this ability because of the work of this anointing that we're talking about. Jeremiah 31, God says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. Through the work of the anointing, through the work of the Holy Spirit now residing in us, we have the ability to know truth, and therefore we can be confessors of truth. Now, the third thing we see, looking again at the text here in 1 John 2, the third thing that we see as we think about Antichrist being deniers, but Christ's anointing the work of the Holy Spirit, allowing us to remain true to our confession, faithful to it, A third thing we see is something here about the Antichrist, Antichrists. Whereas we've received this anointing that allows us to know the truth, the Antichrists have not received. Those who are opposed to Christ's kingdom have not received this anointing. And verse 22 tells us they're liars. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So the spirit of the Antichrist Is a spirit that denies the lordship of Jesus Christ. The confessor says Jesus is the Christ, and and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ and enter into eternal life, we receive the Holy Spirit who allows us to know who Jesus is and confess that to be true. The spirit of the Antichrist continually denies the lordship of Christ. I was reading an article recently uh, by a guy named Chuck Queen, and he was writing in a blog, and and uh, he had some very, uh, very unpleasant things to say about conservative Christians, and some unpleasant things to say about Baptists. Um, who doesn't, right? But still, um, he has some really mean things to say about Baptists. He says, you know, I used to believe this this whole lost or saved thing. You know, I, I used to believe that people were either lost or saved. He goes, but, but now I don't believe that. He says, it's sad. It's sad that there are people who are stuck in exclusive Christian belief systems like the leaders and members of the Southern Baptist Convention with their infatuation with lostness. He says, it's ironic because they're, they're the ones who are actually lost. He says, I, I used to be like that, but, but now I have this, this enlightenment. You know who that sounds like, right? There's nothing new under the sun. It sounds exactly like John's opponents. I used to believe that, that, that lost or saved thing. I used to try to live that way. But now I have this, this, this special insight. And, and unlike those backward followers of the apostle John, now I've got this special knowledge. The, the same is true in many people calling themselves Christians today. I used to believe that, that silly stuff, but now I've got this special knowledge. You know, John speaks in terms of lost or, or saved, opposing God's kingdom or establishing God's kingdom. And it's tied with belief, right? The fourth thing to see here, a fourth thing that I think is really important for us to see is that God promises eternal life to those who are confessors. It says, It says, whoever confesses, this is the last part of verse 23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, remain with you, continue with you. If what you heard from the beginning, this this truth about who Jesus is, abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. There's this promise of eternal life for those who are confessors. And John's encouragement is, look, uh, the, the promise that he made to you, that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that, that, that thing that was true at the beginning, it's, it's going to continue to be true. Because when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you've received this anointing that's going, to be con- that's going to continue to be true of you. The Holy Spirit is going to work in your heart to ensure that you're going to remain true to your confession. Brothers and sisters, you were designed by God when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You were ordained, anointed to be a confessor. The true believer who has the spirit working within her or working within him is going to be a confessor. You're going to find yourself in the workplace in an uncomfortable situation saying, Hey, Jesus is my king. Do with me what you will. You're going to find yourself facing family situations saying, Hey, you know what, family? I love you, but Jesus is my king. I gotta confess him to you. Here's a third thing about Antichrists. Here's a third thing. Antichrists are deceivers, but Christ's anointing ensures that I will remain in his truth. You see, Antichrists are deserters, they desert themselves. So- they, they separate themselves from the fellowship of believers. Antichrists are deniers. They encounter the lordship of Jesus Christ and they go, No, don't believe it. I deny that Jesus Christ is Lord, as, as scripture says he's Lord. They deny that, but they're not content with that. Not only do they, do they deny the lordship of Christ, they deceive others. John tells us, I write these things to you, verse 26 about those who are trying to deceive you now this is a very interesting thing to me but what's interesting to me is that i encounter people all the time who would claim to be christians who would say that they they believe that jesus is lord and yet deny that there are false teachers i was having a conversation with someone recently over over uh, just kind of having a conversation about some things I, I was saying some things about our churches and i i, I said some things that were very um honestly very, very hard for me to say to this this person who i consider a friend i say you know what I, I don't think you're teaching the truth about who jesus christ is I said, i, I think you're denying the lordship of jesus christ i i think you're you're, you're i think you're deceived and deceiving others and there was a little bit of pushback, understandably, there's pushback from my friend. He said, well, you know, I, I don't believe that there are, you know, the false teachers like you described. And so I, I took him to some verses. I took him to verses like Matthew 24, 24. It says, false cro- Christ and false prophets will arise. I took him to Galatians 1, where, where Paul says, I'm astonishing that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are to a different gospel. Verse Cha- uh, chapter three, verse one of Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you is before your eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, there are going to be false teachers who who teach false gospels. I think of Paul's words to, to Timothy as, as he describes these false teachers. He says in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, and which we already looked at. And uh, 2 Timothy describes this as well in chapter 2. It says that, um, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I said, look, what do you do with those verses? There's a reality that that deception is going to take place in the church. And he didn't really have an answer. I said, if it's not you, then who is it? (laughs) Boy, that's a hard thing to say. He said, well, Daniel, how do I know that I'm not deceived? How do I know that I'm not deceived and deceiving others? If it's true that there are deceivers and it's true that they're going to, to lie about who Jesus is and about his lordship over our lives, how can, I, how can I be sure that I'm going to remain in Christ's truth? And I say, that's a great question. Listen to what John says the answer to that is. So there's these deceivers. He says, here's, here's your hope, verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. And I think what he's talking about there is, is the gospel. You, you don't need someone to teach you something new about the gospel, about how to come into a relationship with Jesus. You don't need some, some secret knowledge that no one's ever known before. But as his anointing, I think he's talking there about the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. There's so much there, right? What I believe John is is teaching the people he loves very dearly there in Asia Minor, he's, he's saying, You have the Holy Spirit. His anointing, the presence of the Holy Spirit, helps you discern truth from error, what's right from what's false. As Christians, we must believe that to be true. We must acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us know what's true and what's false. Uh, Monday night at the the Gospel Institute, we were having a great conversation about about truth and about error and about, you know, throughout the the history of the church. And, And someone asked, well, what... What writers or what authors would you recommend? Who are the safe guys and and ladies? And and who who do we know are are trustworthy? I said, you know, there's not a a single person or teacher in the world, including Daniel Bennett, that I would say, yeah, just trust everything that guy or that lady says in terms of their encouragement to you you as you read their works. What we must do with every truth claim that we encounter, is to compare it to what God's word says and trust the Holy Spirit's work in our life to teach us what's right and what's wrong. Apart from the anointing work of the Spirit, we don't have hope of that being possible. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, tells us that God is revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Later, verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Do you believe that to be true? The spirit, spirits of the Antichrist work to destroy knowledge of God and to deceive, and, and how do they do that? How have they done that since the Garden of Eden? What, what is the, what's the means by which most deception has taken place? The means has been to exalt man, right? To say, okay, uh, here's God establishing his kingdom, yeah, 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 all that's great, but let's, let's exalt ourselves. What's the Spirit's work? The Spirit's work is always to exalt God. Now, on your, in your notes, and we don't have time to, to go into this, but in your notes, I, I was kind of trying to think of some practical applications of this truth about deception and, and how people have asked me oftentimes, okay, how do, I, how do I know what authors are good, what authors are bad? How can I make sure I'm not deceived? And, and I kind of put in some resources there from a book by Will Metzger called Tell the Truth, and it, it talks about God-centered resources versus man-centered resources and, and teachings and things like that. And you, you can look through that on your own or go, or go to that book. But just to sum it all up, I would just say this. If someone is exalting God and his authority and his word, that's a resource you trust, a teaching you trust. If a resource isn't concerned about what God's word says and taking you to God's word, say, hey, let's, let's, let's carefully consider what God's word says. And instead of the resource saying, hey, here's what I believe we should do, and, and here's a couple of Bible verses to tack on to that, that, that's man-centered, not God-exalting. It's not a resource or a teaching or a teacher you should follow. God has given us his Spirit. And the work of the Spirit within us is to to cause us to know God rightly. And God's call on your life, through the work of the Spirit within you, is to seek him, to know him, to exalt him. I remain in Christ because of his anointing. I remain in Christ not through my own efforts. I remain in Christ not because I'm a super-duper Christian. I remain in Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit within me.